each level you go up, it, it's not necessarily one particular set of strategies that it becomes important is that each one of them exponentially becomes more important. The asset protection is more important. The tax engineering is more important. The estate planning component is more important. Hello, hello. My name is Abel Pacheco, and you're listening to the Five Talents Podcast, how to build wealth like the 1%. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Five Talents Podcast, how to build wealth like the 1%. I'm your host, Abel Pacheco. I'm the principal of Five Talents Capital. We're a San Antonio, Texas real estate investment firm, and we're actively invested in 1,500 doors of commercial real estate worth $115 million, much of which is right here in San Antonio, Texas, the Alamo City, baby. I'm also a fund manager, a capital allocator, and a servant leader who learned how to invest like the 1%. And on the Five Talents podcast, I enjoy helping others learn and doing the same. So if you're seeking investment strategies to catapult your family wealth and generate passive income, even in today's volatile market, this show is for you. Because each week we're bringing you interviews with PE firms, investment advisors, financial planners, tax strategists, VC funds, and many others who are highly skilled in handling money, good stewards of capital, and individuals who advise the wealthiest 1% on what to do with their money. So each show, we're going to provide you insights and actionable steps that you can implement to become a better investor. You're always going to learn something that you can apply in your own investment journey on the Five Talents Podcast. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, hello. This is Abel Pacheco, your host for the Five Talents Podcast, how to build wealth like the 1%. So we're interviewing some of the best experts that we can possibly find to figure out how to create wealth, and how to preserve as much of it as possible. And so we are super lucky today to have Mr. Garrett Griffin, because he is one of those experts that advises, helps people direct their, ultimately their assets, the tax strategy, the implications that everything happens, you know, involved in creating wealth and trying to preserve it. And then we were super excited to have him. So Gary, let me introduce you for a moment and then I'll turn it over because if you don't know Gary, you need to get into his world. He's the principal of Legacy Tax Strategies, LLC and Legacy Legal, LLC. He has his JD, which is the Juris Doctorate and his LLM, which is the Masters of Law and Taxation. He's got 20 years of experience doing this. He's been specializing in helping clients defer capital gains, their taxes, on the sales of really highly appreciated assets, which is our goal. We want to buy assets. We want them to increase over time. And then we want to save as much as we can from the tax ban. So he's been doing that for years and years and years. And also we're going to talk to him a little bit about this expertise or this area of expertise that he has that few do with deferred sales trust. So anyways, I'm excited if you can't tell. Garrett, let me turn it over to you for a moment, man. In your, in your own words, just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Well, first, Abel, I appreciate the, the time today and, and really hope that the information that, that we can cover and, and share is going to be, be beneficial to, to the audience. And so, 
You're right. It's, you know, it happens quickly, but, you know, I've had got 20 years of practice. And for purposes of our discussion today, I'd, I'd call myself a wealth strategies attorney. And and ultimately, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the specific strategies. And I'm a, I'm a deferred sales trust trustee. But, you know, really, my my training has been, you know, in what I would call an integrated approach of estate planning, asset protection planning, business planning, and, and really tax planning. And, and I really think that, you know, the intersection of all of those things are going to go right towards your audience today. If we're talking about hey, how, do you, how do you build wealth and, and look like the, the 1%, you know, there's some common things that, that happen and some of the planning strategies. And, you know, just because it's something that the Rockefellers used doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's mm-hmm. not applicable to people who have still have wealth, but maybe, okay, yeah, maybe you're not Rockefeller wealth. You know, one of the things that really has driven me and my team and and my firms over the last few years is that, you know, we're here to serve clients. And our belief is that private capital remaining in the hands of the family is going to serve the family and society as a whole, much, much better than if we turn over 30, 40, 50% of that to the government. And so that drives a lot of, you know, I think our our value system and, you know, who we work with and, you know, and the techniques that, that we try to employ. And so, you know, that's over a, a 20 year career, you know, we, you know, it's, you finally kind of start to hone in a, a little bit on, you know, well, what's driving us and, you know, and, yeah, we want to do certain things for clients. And, and ultimately, that as is really what's driving us and from a motivation standpoint. Yeah, love it, man. Thank you so much. I'm excited because there's a, there's a few things that our audience is going to love today. So if you're a if you're a high net worth individual, HNWI, you know, you have a million to $5 million worth of net worth, and you're trying to figure out how to make five turn into 10, 20, 30, and get that ultra high net worth status. That's so $30 million plus, or if you're a family office that you, like you said, you're, there's a, there's having some wealth, trying to create it and then acting like, well, pulling a play like the Rockefellers, right? Millions of, well, billions of dollars, kind of trying to figure out how to do that. Well, you have to make the same plays as they're doing to actually get there. Otherwise, it just doesn't happen. So just learning about it. And, you know, if you're just a high earner at this point, you're high W-2 earner, 250K plus, and you're, and you're making that money, you may not have, you know, the one to two, three million dollars yet, but you need to start acting as if so that you can get there. And I think the things that Garrett's going to talk about today are, are right on point. So if I can, I'm going to break a few things you said down first for audience, because I heard a wealth strategist attorney, man, just, let's just unpack that for a minute. What, what is that? What does that mean for us? You know, I think, you know, historically, you know, when I got into the the legal realm and, and started with a firm, you know, they called you the estate planning attorney, or maybe you were the business planning attorney. And then obviously I was in the middle of, you know, the first two or three years of practice when I went back to school to get my master's in tax law. And I think what was really interesting is when I really started to focus on the estate planning side of the practice, you know, years seven, eight, nine, it, it really became apparent that it's really truly an intersection of multi disciplines. And, you know, it, it all of a sudden started to become apparent that 
there was some commonalities in one, the clients that I like to work with because they all started to have the same problems. They all started to look alike. And, you know, that usually meant that they were starting to accumulate wealth and a lot of that wealth, I'll call it, they were in complex assets. That means, you know, beyond just, hey, I got some money in a brokerage account or I got some money in an IRA. You know, there's certainly complexities to those and and, and the ability to plan for those types of assets. But what I found was clients had real estate holdings. They had interests in business. You know, they had interests in, yeah, okay, maybe IRAs and 401ks, and those usually had pretty large sums in them. And so those assets became complex. And, And now even fast forward a little bit more, and we've got more complexity with cryptocurrencies and NFTs and, and those type of things. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, the, the clients that I enjoyed working with started to, you know, there was a developing a, a commonality amongst them. And, and that was they, they had a lot of messy stuff. You know, there was a lot of complexity, which meant, you know, there was a lot of planning and opportunity for us and the clients to have, you know, tax saving strategies, state tax strategies, business strategies, and all those types of things. And so that, that opportunity opportunity was there, but it also, it gave some flavor to practicing law. You know, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a cookie cutter approach. You couldn't go in and say, well, I got this kind of trust and everybody's going to fit into that nicely. No, you, know, you really had to, to think and sometimes think outside the box and, you know, and look at, well, what are some of the cutting edge strategies? And, you know, you try to find the, the really sharp guys that, that do it throughout the U.S. and you say, okay, what are they doing and how can I implement that? with my clientele. And so, you know, it's been, you know, it's really been that over the last decade um, where, you know, I think I've been able to really kind of focus and hone my practice in with that particular type of client, which, you know, again, it, it drives me personally in our mission. It makes the work more enjoyable, but then we also, we stumble across these new strategies, you know, cause it's, it's, you know, it's, you don't know what you don't know sometimes. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Things get introduced to you and you go, well, yeah, I'd never, I never thought of it that way. Or I, yeah. you know, how did I not know about that? And one of the strategies we talked about today, it was, you know, I went, you know, 17, you know, years practicing in the space and and didn't understand and know that it truly existed. And, you know, you yeah. come across that. And, and when you do, it's it's great because you're like, oh, well, here's a solution or, you know, that, that may work for for some clients. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Love it. That's, uh, if I heard a couple of words right, I heard your top clients or most, some of those clients were having the same problems as they were accumulating wealth. They had very complex assets yep. and they were trying to figure out how to do that. And there's an intersection of your investment and an intersection of maybe this law part of it that goes together because not only am I trying to make sure that my wealth is earning more is providing a good return but the other term that that Garrett mentioned if you didn't you know if you didn't write it down asset protection i you know as you accumulate more the last thing you want to do is lose it not because the investment was bad but because you didn't have some of this legal stuff shored up you're making hundreds and thousands millions of dollars of return and you let it fall out of a leaky bucket because 
you, you didn't have, you know, a document in place that you could have spent a few thousand dollars to put together. Right. So those are those things that I think I heard. You're exactly right. Because as when you look at the, I'll call it kind of the old and outdated term of estate planning, you're just like, oh, what happens to me when I die with all my stuff, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and and all of a sudden, well, one, that's, that's not incredibly attractive because all you think about is death. Who cares when I die, right? Right, you know, and so, and while, yes, it's absolutely important, but it becomes part of the cycle of the mm-hmm. planning with clients. And so mm-hmm. you talked about the wealth creation. So I say, yeah, there's a wealth creation and accumulation phase. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that, that continues on, but sure. then you got the protection phase where it's, I need to make sure that it's protected while I'm alive. Yeah. And then there's, to me, there's even then the final component, which is more of the historical estate planning. That's the preservation. Okay. Now I'm gone and it's going to go to my spouse or my children or my grandchildren. How do I make sure that that is what I've created, that it's preserved for at least another generation or two or more. And so you kind of have those phases. And and I really think where the wealth strategies comes in is you're really part of all those phases now, not just the back end, what happens when you die there. It's much more integrated across the board. and, And some of that's been my own personal experience with those clients, with those commonalities, but also all the variation and changes and fluctuations and tax laws and those type of things have, have led to oh, that yeah. in addition. So that's another thing too, right? It's the, there's this complexity of this ever changing law, tax law, rules, IRS changes. It's never going to be, oh yeah, I used to do this 10 years ago. Man, that's completely different now. Moving right? target, moving target. These things, if if you're if you've got some means to yourself right now, uh, let me pause you and say, hey, there, there's there's a lot of things that we're talking about, and Garrett's going to illuminate that may be a little difficult to grasp. Number one, or maybe you've never heard before. Number two, or maybe you know about them, you know all the buzzwords, but you've never been able to take action. You gotta you gotta choose one direction, focus down, and just take a small step of action towards you know, reaching out, getting one thing in in place before you move to the next. Don't worry about 10 different strategies. Just take an action on the the best next step and go from there. What would you uh, agree or disagree? What do you think, man? Yeah, there's really in, in my mind potentially two answers, but, and you could kind of choose one, getting some, especially if you've got a family and you're starting that accumulation, having some level of some basic estate planning documents, because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the unfortunate thing is, is with, with 20, 20 years of experience in estate planning, you see the unfortunate happen. Yeah. You know, and especially with COVID, everybody got a, you know, a real heavy dose of mortality and what that means. And so, you know, you reflect on that and you think, man, you know, we don't know what the next day holds. And if I weren't here, I don't want a mess left for those that are behind me. And so having having those basic, you know, revocable living trust, you know, power of attorney documents in place, to me, that's that's really step one. And mm-hmm. probably right close behind that is as you start to accumulate and think about those things, it's developing some type of what I call a tax engineering plan. Mm, I love it. I'm excited about this. So I have a feeling I know where you're going because I literally for ourselves and our family, I had a bunch of stuff. We're accumulating assets. Uh, if you don't know us, if this is the first time you're listening, we're in about 1500 doors of commercial multifamily uh, assets. This is the vehicle we've chosen from our family to say, let's put our time, effort, energy. Let's put all our eggs in the basket. 
in this basket right here, and we're going to watch the basket. I might have a little diversification over many multiple deals, but that's the basket we're choosing. We're putting it all in. And the first step was, well, shoot, what happens if I pass? And my wife's like, I don't, where's all the paperwork? Where's all this stuff? So we started, we put together a living trust and then we started funding and putting everything in there. And, you know, it, it also, I learned through this process of like something were to happen. This is really the only way to avoid a probate, a lawyer, a a judge making a decision. It's like, no, I don't want them making a decision. We wanted to hold the, we wanted to control that. Right. But the second part that Garrett's about to jump into which I think I heard it correct. Let, let me turn it over, man. What, what were you going to say? What's what's this? Yeah, so, yeah, so it's really that that tax engineering component, and you know, and everything's always you know. I agree. You you phase those things in. What's what's my hot button? And sometimes the hot button is is something else. And especially when you know when we deal with business owners, you know, those that have closely held family owned businesses, you know, a lot of times it's well, what's your hot button? Even though I may have a, you know some preconceived notions of where I want to drive them. You know, you you want to serve the client, and so it's like, well, what is it that's keeping you up at night, and can we address that? But you know, really, that that tax engineering plan, and and that you know, really can take on a lot of different shapes, and that could be, well, just I'm looking at my income taxes. How do I how do I lower my income taxes? You know, that that could be a strategy. And is it my ordinary income? Is it my capital gain income? How can I leverage? taxable assets into tax-free wealth. You know, there's there's a component that I'm looking at there. And then, you know, then you've also got, you know, as a as a separate taxing mechanism that the government employs is, okay, well, if you've accumulated enough and now you've got yourself into potentially a taxable estate, now I need to do some estate and gift tax planning as well to minimize taxes. And so, you know, you're you're looking at that tax engineering from from multiple facets and, you know, and not everyone's going to be applicable to you at a, any given point in time. But if you're constantly doing that review, working with the professionals to say, okay, well, I'm invested in these things, that's going to result in this type of income tax. How do I have ways of structuring that to minimize that? Is there a way to defer? Is there yeah. a way to eliminate? And, and so, you know, there's, there's all kinds of techniques, both from the income tax side, all the way to the estate and gift tax side that otherwise, if you, you know, like I said, you don't know what you don't know, you just kind of go blindly into things and, you know, you're not going to be as efficient in accumulating as you'd yeah. like to be. Yeah. I love it. Uh, thanks for, for giving the insight, right? It's tax engineering. When I was younger, I thought taxes were, was a prescribed amount that you had to pay the IRS no matter what. And later, as I learn, I go, oh, yes, that prescribed amount is accurate if you're a W-2 employee only and you don't employ some of these strategies that the wealthy are deploying because you have the means to do it. You can work with an expert, hire someone else's years and years and years of experience and leverage their insight to help you make the right move. And then you can literally engineer your taxes, uh, figure it out. Do I want to pay a lot this year or do I not? Do I want to push some stuff over next year or not? And those plays are what the wealthy 1% are doing today. They're literally determining how much taxes am I going to pay this year and do I want to or not? Because it may be more beneficial to save my assets, to make sure that my our hard-earned money stays our hard-earned 
uh, money, right? And not, you know, give it away to the government. And so it's a good mindset, you know, Garrett, I, I think, uh, man, I'm excited to hear you keep talking. Let me, let me pause for a minute and try to hold yeah. my excitement. So you mentioned that, you know, that this, these are some of those plays, tax engineering, right? Yep. So as we kind of move a little bit further on, if I can ask you a question about your clients, right? Sure. The clientele that see you, what is your typical client range? Maybe describe like, you know, the different tranches you have. A lot, here's my majority of base. Here's what they're doing. Here's my next level up. And maybe what these top, top, you know, earning or the wealthiest sure. clients are doing. Maybe just illuminate a little bit of that sure. so we get a picture of it. Yeah. You know, historically, I would say, you know, the the typical client that you get more of just because, you know, it's almost bell curve esque is that you, you know, got a lot of clients that are probably worth one, two, three million that have been W-2 earners for the majority of their lifetime. They've built up a retirement account. You know, they've got a modest home, some other savings, and, you know, and, and they've got quite a bit then in these retirement vehicles. And I would say, you know, from a from a number standpoint, those are the the most clients that I've dealt with over over my time. Emma Posse right yeah, here too. Yeah. So I heard one to three million dollars. W two earners made a good living professionally. They've stored up. They've saved like crazy. What are their typical age group that you see them in there? Yeah, they're all you know approaching retirement or after retirement, and and most of those clients have strictly been estate planning. The complexity of their assets is really not there. They don't have business assets that they're trying to exit from. They don't have a lot of real estate holdings. And so they're really filed. If I could pause you again, man, I'm sorry. I'm I'm interrupting Garrett. I'm I'm going to let him him talk, I promise, audience. But just, you know, just even in this part, there's a lot of knowledge because without complexity of asset, without a lot of interest in businesses, without a lot of interest in real estate, it's going to take you longer to get there in your retirement age to jump from one to $3 million. So just, and that's the majority of Garrett's clients. And I would say the majority of those, you know, those clients are probably pretty happy. They led a great life. They're, you know, oh man, they did all the right things. Right. Absolutely. We're not even talking about the people that didn't, but if that's the lifestyle that you want, that's okay. But that's it. This next category, man, illuminate this a little bit for us. Yeah. So, so the next one is, you know, the, the assets certainly start to become a little bit more complex. And, and I would say, you know, somebody has ventured out and, and gotten into usually real estate that might be direct holdings. They've got, oh, we've got a rental or two. And it may be single family, it may be multifamily, but they they started to accumulate a little bit there. They may have some you know limited partnership interests or some you know in a syndicate or something like that. So it, and it's usually kind of in that area where they've they've started to to venture out with more variety in in their portfolio. And so you know certainly now all of a sudden you're looking at okay, well now asset protection becomes an issue, business planning becomes an issue. You know where either you yourself are creating an LLC or you're becoming a, a partner in a general partnership or a limited partnership. And now all of a sudden you've got business documents and all those things. So it, all of a sudden that complexity jumps up as does the tax planning. And so you, you start to see that. And, and then there's probably a couple layers above that. And that's where you've got, it's a combination. Typically somebody has got closely held family owned business that has 
started to really produce and it's produced enough additional income net after tax that they've gone. And now they've also got real estate holdings in, in various methods. And so, you know, the complexity then builds again. And then, then it really is the complexity is the same, except you just have different levels of wealth of how much has been accumulated. So, you know, a lot, I would say the majority of my clients are probably between 15 and 20 million. That's a, that's a really good chunk. It's a great group to work with. And then you've got, you know, and then there's a handful of clients that I've got that are kind of that 20 million plus. And they just, It's just got more. It's worth more. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I'll I'll, I'll pause you before you get here because this is this is uh this is good insight, right? This is really good insight for the people that are trying to figure out. Well, I'm on. If you're on a path to create one or two or three, Garrett almost laid out a really good roadmap, right? Get you know, and then if you're trying to figure out how to get from three to fifteen, by nature is kind of what I'm hearing, Garrett. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm trying to figure out. The complex investments, I am a part of an LLC. I am a partner in this. I, I do have interest in, I heard syndicate, I heard real estate, which, you know, is it, isn't news to me, but I kind of set it up to you to, right. point to talk about it because that's what a lot of our investors do. Like people ask me all the time, like, how are y'all doing that? We're raising millions and millions of dollars. We buy commercial properties, 10 to $20 million plus in, in a 30 to 60 day window, we're raising like five to $7 million, people pouring in their money back and forth, because those are the individuals that have, uh, have figured out, I have to go to a little bit more complex investment right. to try to figure out how to diversify outside of my IRA, my stock market yep. and that plan. And they're taking those extra risks. They're leveraging an expert like Garrett's team to say like, is this the right play? And the experts are saying, yes, a good majority of our investors that are in the 10 to $15 million range, this is what they're doing. And it reinforces, it builds confidence to say, this is the right direction. When other people are telling you, no, don't do that. And that person doesn't have a million and you're trying to figure out how to get to the four or five, you right. got to talk to the experts. You got to talk to the pros, got to talk to somebody like Garrett and his team because they advise people how to do this like all the time. So anyways, man, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I get excited. No, yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. And, and it's each level you go up, it, it's not necessarily one particular set of strategies that it becomes important is that each one of them exponentially becomes more important. The asset protection is more important. The tax engineering is more important. The estate planning component is more important. And so each one of them, this just read, you know, really just ratchet up another level as you go in. And, and, you know, the more that you look to say, well, how do I get myself from this level to that next level? You know, a lot of times it's going to be some of that tax engineering, how, how you know, if I can yes. save more, and, you know, in taxes, then I've got more to use. Yeah, and ultimately yeah, yeah. that becomes, uh, you know, a, a big chunk of it. And, you know, how do, yeah. I, how do I take taxable assets into a tax-free environment? How do I, you know, how do I defer taxes so that, I, you know, I can, you know, use my money more so than giving it to the government? Yeah, I, I think that's our next discussion, right? Well, hold on. There's there's three things. There's the top of the top. I, want, I do want to know what the heck are they doing different that we need to be doing. So that's one. Let's talk about deferred sales trust, which are deferring taxes. Yep. So that'll be the second one. I'm going to write those notes down to make sure we hit them. Yep. But before we get there, right, it's I want you know everyone to kind of get it and realize I, t- I was talking to a buddy of mine. He's raised $150 million. In other words, he's helped place about $150 million of investor capital 
in investments and he's doing pretty well. He said that, you know, one of the years that just kind of blew his mind was he didn't view himself as a, you know, ultra high net worth or a family office type of, you know, guy. It was just more like, we're making money. We're doing good. Cool. But what he told me was the, the light bulb that went off is he made a move towards the end of the year that cost him $50,000 in taxes. He lost it. He made, he missed, it was so much going on right. that you missed this move and it cost you 50 G's in taxes. And he goes, man, had I just hired somebody $50,000 payroll type of individual or an expert and, you know, given my money to somebody else that can advise me, I could have probably either paid them less or at least probably hundred percent avoided the 50 K in losses. Had I just had an expert that was helping me advise me with my own right. stuff. So you may not be in this $50,000 kind of loss position, but I mean, 5k, 10k, 40k, 30, you know, all of these numbers add up, which is why I always say that I, I don't know all these things that Garrett's talking about, but what I do is I hire experts around me to help me make the right plays. And, th- and this is where Garrett's, you know, company and teams come in. Yeah. And I think you said it's, and it's, again, it's all relevant to, you know, we talked about the Rockefellers earlier, uh, you know, just because of the level of wealth that they've created doesn't mean the same strategies aren't applicable to the rest of us that are trying to get there. And, yeah. and, you know, you, you look at that and, you know, you said, okay, well, maybe it's not a $50,000 deal, but what if it's a $5,000 deal? But what if it's a repeatable $5,000 oh, you're missing? And all yeah. of a sudden, you know, 10 years and now you, it, it is 50, you know, and, and what could you have done with that 50 over a, that period of time? And that's, you know, and ultimately that's, you know, when you look at, I think the, you know, the, the upper, upper, which was one of your, your points. Yeah. yeah. What are they, what's differentiating them? What are they doing? You know, I, I would say, you know, from a particular strategy, they use life insurance very well. And there's, it's a layering of strategies. It's not, oh, we've got one thing, one silver magic bullet that's doing it all. Although life insurance is a pretty good one. It's a layering of the various strategies. And again, it's all an intersection. So it's not, hey, we've deployed one thing. No, they've deployed 15 things and all of them working together then you've got a cohesive plan and you're like, okay, well now it's not just, I can take one step. I put all those things together and I just took 15 steps. Mm-hmm. And so those things, you know, the, the, the sum, you know, of the various parts is, is greater than if you just added them all up individually. And so, you, you know, when, when you have those strategies that are layered on top of one another, you got some exponential ability yeah. to, to progress. That's great, man. Thank you so much uh, for illuminating that. I think it's very helpful for our audience. Whatever place you're at in your financial journey, the beginning, middle, or end, you can absolutely learn a lot from, from this conversation. I would say if you didn't rewind it, take some notes and you know get it on. Take some action, right? Hello, hello. You're listening to the Five Talents Podcast. I'm your host, Abel Pacheco. If you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're serious about achieving financial freedom. Are you ready to create your own path through multifamily investing for yourself and your family? Then I know you're going to appreciate our investor's guide to multifamily investing. It's titled Tackling Commercial Real Estate the Easy Way. We use this guide to invest ourselves in $93 million worth of real estate. So we're going to show you the basic mechanics of multifamily syndications and how to evaluate your next passive investment opportunity. So the best part, 
If you've subscribed to our podcast now, leave us a review and a rating. I'm going to give you a free copy of our ebook. So please take a moment to do that now. Once you've done that, go to 5tcre.com forward slash ebook, 5tcre.com forward slash ebook. Make sure to let us know you left a review and we're going to send you a free copy. So thank you so much for subscribing to the Five Talents Podcast. We really appreciate it. Okay, so we're talking about deferring taxes. There's things that we kind of know and hear about a lot, capital gains taxes and stuff like that. But also we heard about this deferred sales trust. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it over to you. You're an expert. I don't no. want to steer you down the wrong path. Tell us what, what that means and what kind of strategies we can be employing right now. Absolutely. You know, from a, from a high level, what this particular strategy allows us to do is really gives us some control over the tax liability. And we're talking about capital gains tax. And so this strategy applies to the sale really of any capital asset. So that could be a professional practice. It could be any type of business, closely held, family-owned, commercial real estate, investment properties, syndicate interests, partnership interests, high-end primary residences, major stock positions, cryptocurrency, NFTs, artwork and collectibles. So anything where you have some type of capital gains transaction. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a highly appreciated asset, although we run into that a lot, but it could be situations where you've got an adjusted basis because of depreciation on that particular asset and the fair market value. But essentially, you've got a a capital gains transaction. And what this strategy does is it allows you to control when you want to pay that tax. So it is a deferral transaction and technique. It is not an elimination technique. It does not make it disappear, but it, it does defer. So when we work with a lot of clients or, you know, we work with a lot of professional advisors and they're working with the clients and we run into this an, an awful lot and we have a couple scenarios. And one is a client doesn't want to sell the asset because they know there's going to be a tax. Or the other one that we come across probably just as frequently, and that is the sale is going to happen pretty soon. And all of a sudden, they've had a discussion with the CPA and the CPA said, this is the check that you're going to write or the proceeds that you're not going to get because you've got to turn around and pay them to the government. And then it's like, whoa, I don't want to do that. Or what do we do now that we're already kind of down that road, the ball is rolling type of thing. And so for those clients that are sitting on the fence, they don't want to sell an asset. You know, we say, well, we're going to unlock that trapped wealth because they feel trapped because of the capital gains. Well, I don't, I don't want to remove this position or exit this, this holding because of the capital gains tax. And, and then the other ones, like I said, it's a little bit more like triage. It's, Hey, this is, this is going to hurt. And we're already, you know, too far down. What, what can we do to alleviate some of the the pain here? And so uh, effectively what we're doing is we're using the installment sale portion of the code. So that's code section 453. And if you think about a normal seller finance transaction where you're selling an asset to a buyer and the buyer is going to pay you over time, this looks a little bit like that. 
except okay. the the risks in a normal seller finance transaction is that you're relying on this buyer whom you may or may not know to pay you back. And if they don't pay you back, you end up with the property that you sold, which you may not want, especially if it's a business or something that's going to require a lot of extra work. And so in this situation, we're using section 453 of the code, and we're going to effectuate a sale of the asset to what we call the deferred sales trust. So the, the trust is a completely separate standalone vehicle that is created by the trustee. So I, I'm one of those trustees that we had talked about. There's, I think, 17 of us, maybe 18 of us in the US. And so the trustee creates this trust, yeah. but it's got its own specific business purpose, which is to handle this transaction. And there's trustee. Yeah, yeah. There's the potential that this trust could potentially have some income over time. But what's going to happen is the trust is going to purchase the asset from the seller and the seller is going to take back a promissory note. And that promissory note is going to be structured as an installment sale. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. that independence of the trust becomes paramount. You'll see these transactions fail. And it's because, well, I use my brother. You know, I use the CFO of my company. And so that independence of these and, and why there are, you know, training and, and limited numbers of the trustees is that independence and, and some specific knowledge around the transaction. And so what happens is likely the, the seller has already identified a buyer. And, and they, they come to us in, in all different phases of, of a transaction. Some have not even put the property on the market yet. Others are like, hey, I got a closing you know, that, that's imminent. And so the trust is created, essentially buys the asset from the client in exchange for a promissory note. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. shortly thereafter, the trust then consummates the sale with the third-party buyer. And so the trust then ultimately ends up with the proceeds that the buyer has then paid. Mm -hmm. And now buyer, they've got their asset. They go off, they go down the road. They're out of the picture. And so now the trust has assets inside of it. Initially, it's just liquid proceeds that, that came from the buyer. And that now is the seller's collateral. So the relationship went from, I own this asset and Mm -hmm, here's mm -hmm. this independent trust to now the trust is the debtor and I, the client that was the seller, I'm now the creditor. I'm like the bank. Yeah. And my collateral, it's the assets inside of the trust. Mm -hmm. And because I'm the creditor, I have the ability to use the investment manager that I want to manage those assets. Yeah. They're going to develop a portfolio allocation that is consistent with my risk tolerance profile, as well as ultimately what terms we negotiated on the promissory note. And all those things kind of work in conjunction with one another. Yep. And so that now is their collateral. Now we'll have we'll have clients, and, and you know, when we first go through these discussions, they think, oh, well, the trust is my trust. This is this is not your typical it's estate an independent planning. trust. Yeah. yeah, it's not your typical estate planning trust. It's a it's a business trust. And so the parties are just slightly different, but the client is not a party in the trust. They are the creditor to the trust, but they get to approve because they're a secured creditor, they get to approve the portfolio allocation. And so you've got that as kind of the relationship is that the the trustees don't manage the money themselves. They're going to look to the advice of a financial advisor. Usually it's going to be chosen by the the note holder. And Mm -hmm. so that's really the relationship. And so when 
prior to the transaction closing, the client is going to set really the terms of the promissory note with the trustee. And, you know, every client situation is a little bit different, but if you want kind of the biggest bang for your buck, you typically what we'll have is we'll have a 10-year interest-only promissory note, which means that when I initially have that sale, it's not a tax-recognized event. I don't recognize any tax liability. So here's our, this is where we get our deferral because what I get is I get a promise to pay. Yeah. Now, like I said, a lot of times we have 10 year interest only promissory notes. And so the trust will start at some point paying interest to the client. That is ordinary income to the client. It's paid by the trust to them. Yes. But we we still are deferring our capital gains tax because yes. I've not received yeah. a principal payment. So until I do receive a principal payment, I've deferred the capital gains tax. And so if you look at that, Abel, and you think, well, how, how do we get from this level to the next level? What we've essentially done is when you sell that asset to the trust, you've created the taxable event. Mm-hmm. But because of the promissory note, you don't have to recognize that tax yet. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. more importantly, you have, have to pay the liability yet. But you owe the tax. At that point in time, you owe, you know, you owe the tax to the government, but they've said, well, we're not going to collect it yet because you're doing it on the installment sale treatment. So when you receive some principal, that's when you'll pay the tax. Well, if you go at least 10 years without taking any principal, you've deferred for a 10-year yeah. period. Mm-hmm. So so, you know, trying to use some simple math, if you had a $3 million transaction that was all taxable, because we usually end up with clients that have very low basis in something, let's say it's a $3 million purchase price. So the whole transaction is, is taxable. Well, you're going to pay probably 30% between capital gains and state taxes and yeah, yeah, potentially yeah. The Medicare surtax and all $900,000 for those yeah, that so aren't we, like, catching yeah, that math. There's right, like 900K. So, right. 900K or we'll use a million for simple Ooh. math. So what we basically did is if I don't have to pay that million till at the earliest 10 years from now, I just got a tax-free loan from the government. Yeah. Yeah. I said, you owe the million, but we're not going to collect it until you get paid down the road. Yeah. So what's great about this, again, it's, it's, it's a deferral strategy, but you're getting to use the money that you owe the government. You get to use it tax-free. They're not and interest-free. They're not charging you any interest on that over that period of time. Yep. And so until you get to that maturity on the note, you've deferred. Now, what's nah. great about the note structure is when you get close to maturity. Let's say again, you did a ten-year note. Mm-hmm. Prior to the maturity, you could say, "Hey, this is a great deal. I don't necessarily need that capital for other things. Let's." Let's renew this thing. Let's renew yeah. the promissory note. We'll get another 10 years. up again, right? And, and so all of a sudden, you're, you're getting that use of that money that you'd otherwise pay in tax over a 10, 20, 30-year period. The great thing is, is if you pass away as the note holder, that does not trigger the payment. So if you held it, your spouse could be a beneficiary of that note. Your children could be a beneficiary of that note. So in theory, indefinitely, we could continue to defer this yeah. tax. Now, again, it still is owed. And if somebody says, hey, you know, kids, let's say they inherit this note and they say, hey, that was great. You know, maybe I don't want to go 10 years. Maybe I'll do five and then I'll let it mature and then I'll pay the tax. Okay, that's great. But we have gotten to use that it's money. Choice. Yes, the choice. And then we have control 30 over years. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of power there. 
again, client has that asset then is the promissory note. That's that's an asset that they can transfer to a spouse, to children, et cetera. And so a, a lot of power there and their death in and of itself does not trigger maturity on the loan. And so pretty powerful from, from that standpoint. What I think is Maybe another step beyond that in terms of where the leverage can come in is the ability for the client to potentially do a joint venture with Mm. the trust. Okay. Okay. So client exits an asset and let's say we've got some money sitting in the trust that we'll call it, you know, is being managed. The financial advisor is managing those assets. You know, they've, they've done a portfolio allocation. Two, three, four years goes down the road and the client says, hey, this opportunity came up. I can go into this other project, um, but I don't have all the money that I need. And the trust says, well, we can use up to 80% of what we're holding. Yeah. Yeah. We'll create an LLC with you and we'll, the trust will own 20% as a, as a preferred member and you'll be the 80% managing member. And the trust will take that money and make a capital contribution to the LLC. Now let's go buy the project. Yeah. And and so we've got some flexibility there that it doesn't all have to be and kept in managed money all the time. We like we like to keep that 80-20 ratio because obviously there's liquidity needs for expenses and those type of things. But but we have that ability to enter into joint ventures with the note holders to leverage those those funds a, a little bit better. Wow, Garrett, man, if that one was a little hard to follow, if you've never gone into the world, you know, this area of becoming the bank of seller finance, of promissory notes, leveraging, leverage Leverage. in general, (laughs) this is a great one to rewind and just, you know, Google some of these terms that Garrett's dropping because, you know, for the for a simpleton like me, one of the first things I learned about in real estate was creative financing. And it was a seller finance, seller finance, which meant I could make offers on a property and ask the seller to be the bank for me. They gave me the asset. I promised to pay a promissory note is created and I paid them a monthly amount. And I was able to buy deals or you know, buy real estate without a lot of capital down. Yep. Well, this is essentially what I was asking that seller to do, which every once in a while I got lucky, but I was asking the seller to take a risk on me. Absolutely. Which is not what typically you want to do. But on the flip side, that seller could have said, you know what, Abel, I don't need to do that. I'm just going to create a trust with one of the 18, think about that too, how lucky we are to learn from Garrett. One of the 18 trustees in the US, 18 out of millions and millions of people, we get to interview Garrett to, to become that official trustee, then create a, the business trust, creates a promissory note. And that seller could have said, no, thank you, Abel. I don't need to take that risk, right. but I want to defer taxes. The reason they were willing to take those risks on you, or if you're a buyer on that perspective, it's, I don't want to pay those taxes. And now you can leverage that same structure minus the risk of a buyer who may or may not pay. And so absolutely, that's, that's beautiful. Absolutely. And you look at those those typical seller finance transactions, what the deferred sales trust allows you to do mm-hmm. is to get liquidity and diversification because yeah. you don't get that on a seller finance deal because yeah, the liquidity, asset, you don't get yeah. the capital back. Yeah. Investing. Otherwise, the person that bought the asset, they're still holding that asset and that's, like your, and that's your collateral. And that makes yeah. it you know pretty difficult from, from that standpoint. The other the other side of that is, and, and not, not that it's in every transaction, but a lot of times 
when you have those private seller finance deals is there's no prepayment penalty. Yeah, yeah. So if you think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, as the seller, I'm going to enter into a seller finance deal and the buyer's going to pay me over five years, which means that I'm going to recognize 20% ish of my capital gains every year for the next five years, roughly. Yeah. Rough. So I kind of have an idea in my head what that's going to look like. Except after year two, the guy goes, Free hey, I got more money. I'm going to pay you off. You can't stop me. And now all of a sudden, you've got a completely taxable transaction in year two that you thought you were going to get to spread over the another three or four yeah. more years. Yeah. And so in that situation, you have lost control over the tax liability yeah. in a of finance. With the deferred sales trust, trustee's not just going to turn around and pay you off. That's I love just, it. I love it. If you, if you have some property today and you're thinking about doing an owner finance, trying to evade taxes, you need to reach out to Garrett. This is the way to go. Free up your liquidity, put it back to work. You understand leverage. You've created some wealth. You've done it. Now just do it again. And uh, let me ask the simple question. I think it's the answer is yes, but I'm a syndicator. We put together deals. We raise capital from investors. Say someone has this property and they work with you, Deferred Sales Trust. They have their liquidity in their trusts. Yep. They can direct, you know, 100K, 200K, whatever, up to 80% of liquidity into like a syndication deal or any other deal that they, they wanted to. They absolutely could. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. It's just, been, it's just done through a joint venture with them and and the trust. And and you know, from a from a getting into and getting out of you know a syndication, and and this goes kind of across the board. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some what I'll call kind of ideal candidates, and okay. most of the time, we we like to see transactions at least a million dollars. You know, occasionally I've seen some that are a little bit lower than that. But, you know, with the the way the fees are structured and the way the complexity of the deferred sales trust, if it's not a million dollar transaction for you, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, but it, we kind of have that. We have yeah. kind of have that yeah. line in 1031, too. It's just a yeah. lot of headache and, you it know, is. to get in if it's not a significant amount. But if it is and you're like, oh, let's let's yeah, figure this exactly. part out. Exactly. And, you know, and this is both a 1031 alternative mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as well a as more a flexible one I'm hearing as well as a 1031 rescue. So, and in the okay. trick is, is depending upon, you know, which qualified intermediary you're working with, some are a little bit easier to work with than others in, in terms of, you know, on the rescue side. Yeah. But in terms of the alternative, if you think about it, you know, 1031, we've got, you know, got all these different rules. You know, I got a 45 day identification period. I got a 180 day closing period. And so what, what if I'm looking at this and we got, you know, the way the market is right now, you're like, I don't know if I want to buy high and get, maybe I can't find another property or I don't want to find another property, but I'm doing another 1031 just because I don't want to pay the tax. And you could say, well, instead, well, let's do a deferred sales trust. And we close, we've deferred the tax, the money's all sitting in there. And now I say, I'm going to take my time and find the property that I want in the location that I want for the price that I want. So all the 1031 rules go out the window. I don't have 45 day rules. I don't have 180 day rules. I can go then with that joint venture concept. I can go back into another property whenever I want. I can use leverage on the deal. Time. Yeah. Choose the right asset. That's exactly right. The other thing about it is, is when we do find that other property that's different than a 1031 is when we do buy back in, we've reset our basis. 
Ah, yeah. Okay. So cool. We can start that depreciation all over again. And it. so you can do that as, as an alternative, but you could also, again, this is where, you know, depending upon the qualified intermediary, but let's say you're going to fail. You're, yeah. you're in a, you're in the 1031, the QI has got the money. You're not going to hit the 180 day. You're not going to be able to yeah. close for whatever reason. You're not going to be able to identify, but again, as long as the, the QI will agree, we could enter into a defeasance agreement and the deferred sales trust can pick up those proceeds before the expiration of those periods. And it can then act as a rescue. So we don't blow the deferral on a 1031. So there's kind of a back way to, to have that save um, a failed 1031 exchange as well. So, you know, a flexible tool, especially if you're, you thought you were going to do a 1031 and for whatever reason, mm-hmm. something happens and, and, and one of those uh, components is going to be met we've got a, a way to rescue that. Oh yeah. I love it. Holy moly. If you, whoo, if, you, if you didn't catch on here, rewind it a few times, let us sink in. This right here is one of the best strategies uh, that I've heard in a very long time since I started getting my education in real estate and tax corporate structures and, and asset protection. It's, it's like, it is unlocking the key. I think in, in the paradigms of a lot of people that thought they were very only options were very rigid and structured. This is like, it frees it all open. So if you want to get in touch with Gary, Gary, what's the, what's the best place? Actually, who do you want to reach out to you? Sure. Where do you want them to go? Sure. Well, you know, certainly any, anybody who has, you know, and, and again, this is a, the panacea, a wealth strategy issue, we'd be happy to, to have discussions. But certainly our, our primary focus right now is, is, is helping clients defer capital gains taxes. So if you have a capital transaction, you know, sale of, of real estate, sale of businesses, and what that could be commercial high-end crypto um, it's really any of those capital assets. We'd love to have a discussion with you. Really, the best way to, to reach us is to email me directly, Garrett, G-A-R-R-E-T-T, at LegacyTaxStrategies.com. We have a website too that's the LegacyTaxStrategies.com, but probably the easiest, most direct way is just to email me and myself and my team will, will respond. Yeah, I love it. Someone that's listening, probably more than one, just found themselves $900,000 million piece of advice completely for free. You need to reach out to Garrett now to figure out how to actually do that because that just unlocked a million dollars for several people. So I'm excited for you. Is there anything else, Garrett, we didn't cover today that you wanted to hit? Anything at all, man. Just yeah, you know, the, you know, every transaction is always structured a little bit differently. So you know, we've generalized it a little bit where we've said, well, we sell the asset to the trust, but every single deal that we see. Clients hold those assets differently. They hold them individually. They hold them as husband and wife. They may own them as tenants in common. They may have them in an LLC. We run into situations where there's real estate and S-corps, C-corps. Sometimes we have clients that are selling assets out of a C-corp or an S-corp. Sometimes we actually have the business equity that's being sold. So the actual shares. So every one of those deals, there's some nuances in there. So ultimately how we come to the final structure, there's always a lot of, you know, up and down. And then we say, okay, based upon all of these factors, here's how we want to, to you know, basically facilitate the structure of the deferred sales trust. But the the power in that deferral, I'll just say it again, you, you're getting an interest-free loan from the government. You ultimately, when you had that transaction with the trust, you, you've kind of stamped it, you know, you've kind of stamped it. I owe that. 
But because of the deferral under 453, I don't have to pay it till I start recognizing and getting that principal. So if I want to take this out 10, 20 years, I'm getting to use the government's money interest-free to help, yeah. me more, to help me create more wealth. When I was younger, I used to tell my, I, I worked in tech. I was a sales guy. We made it good money. We made commissions, et cetera, et cetera. I used to tell the guys and the gals under me, I'm like, man, in the beginning, I was so mad at taxes because they would take out 25 or 30% or plus of my check. And that was the mindset that I had at first. And then that, you know, frustration, anger, whatever, I positioned it in my head to say, you know what? Paying taxes is actually a good thing because the more that I pay, that means the more that I made, which was true as a W2, you know, sales individual. Right. And so I would tell people on my team this, and then somewhere through the process, my paradigm shifted again, which is like, no, 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 no. It's bad. The IRS do not pay taxes and this is not good. And you need to figure out how to, to eliminate And I actually think you've helped me change my paradigm one more time to say the IRS is a good guy. This is how to do this. And and if you don't have that knowledge, you have a different paradigm. And sometimes those paradigms can just pause you from either taking action, making an investment, worrying about a capital gain, worrying about all these things that are like the what ifs kind of thing. Those paralyze people from taking action and moving. And what you got to do is learn how to leverage experts, leverage pros, leverage people, you know, that can help you see through a different paradigm so that you can figure out what the wealthiest of the wealthiest are doing. And yeah, I, man, yeah, you're absolutely, you yeah, you're absolutely right. And like I said, I, I feel like you have those clients that they feel trapped. Like I, I can't, I can't take the next step. I can't make a move because it, it's gonna, this is going to be painful to to have that tax liability and to have to pay that because it's it's like well, I'm, it's a bit of a reset. I'm kind of hitting reset. I got to take this step back to then move forward again, and and this yeah. helps that. There we go. Well, Garrett, thank you so much for your time. I sincerely appreciate it. It's been a great show. For everyone, this has been another amazing episode on the Five Talents Podcast where we talk about how to build wealth like the 1%. If you want to learn what the the top earners, the top wealth creators, the capital allocators, financial advisors, individuals like Garrett, just learning from them, you need to tune in, leave us a review, leave us a rating, and then go connect with us. We're at www.5talents.capital. If you're trying to figure out the best place for you to put some of the capital, how to defer some of the taxes, and then get an interest-free loan from the IRS and figure out how to deploy it in another commercial asset that creates, man, we're happy to help you create some more passive streams of income. So again, my name is Abel Pacheco. Thanks for listening. Garrett, thank you very much, man. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Five Talents Podcast with myself, your host, Abel Pacheco. We really appreciate you liking, following, subscribing, and leaving all the written reviews for the Five Talents Podcast. Each week, we're going to continue to bring interviews with private equity folks, VCs, advisors, financial planners, strategists, tax strategists, and other stewards of capital, many of which advise the wealthiest 1% on what to do with their money. So we appreciate you joining. Also, if you want to be notified of 
monthly future events we're hosting or attending. And if you want exclusive access to the same investment opportunities that have largely been reserved for the wealthiest 1%, many of which you've rarely ever heard about, go now to our website, watch our wealth building case study, and register to be added to our investment club. We're going to send you future opportunities and you'll be able to watch all the moves that we made firsthand. Your investment journey is waiting for you to take the next step. So what is the next step? Go to www.thenumber5talents.capital. That's 5talents.capital and register today. Thank you again. We can't wait to bring you the next show. And thank you for liking and subscribing.